You're listening to the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, bringing class to trash since Cinema. This is the Gentleman's Guide to TIFF, more appropriately. Today I'm joined by one of our favorite gentlemen. He of uh, Canadian descent, much like me, Large William. Uh, and across the GTA from me is the one and only, the Punani aficionado, the Uncool Cat. That is me. Glad it to be back. And we've done this twice now, and I think our material for both of us was a little better in the initial intro, but <laughs> we were paranoid it wasn't recording. And our I started rapping. It was pretty amazing. It but, was pretty uh, intense. I mean, Big yeah, L. Yeah, my hip-hop skills are pretty good. They are. Big L and Big E uh, both <laughs> shuddered in their grave at the prospect of having to throw down against you. So It's funny, because a lot of my hip-hop songs are about licorice and like snacks I like. And you'd think those wouldn't be hardcore, but I can... Make them, make them quite hardcore. Enough of that foolishness. Have I mean, you ever been whipped with a piece of licorice? It does hurt. I have never, but uh, that will change. On my forearm. No, I'm not requesting it. I'm telling you, I've been whipped on <laughs> the forearm with licorice. I'm not off. even there. Yeah, it's pretty Get terrible. Get in the car. <laughs> yeah, precisely. So this is us at TIFF. Um, this episode came about rather serendipitously, if that's a word. If not, I'm making it up uh, and calling attention to it nonetheless. Um I had no designs on going to TIFF this year, only because I had to. I was at a fork in the road. I had to choose between going to Indianapolis for Horror Hound uh, or going to TIFF, and I chose Horror Hound simply because, um, for me, it felt like the thing to do. Um, it looked like a wise choice. I saw the pictures and stuff. It looked amazing. Yeah, it was, and we're gonna get the Uncool Cat there one of these years. Hopefully next year, actually. I've already sort of scheming of ways to. To kidnap. kidnap him, maybe put something in his milk or get a hypnotist to trick him. He's going to have his gold chains on and his sneakers and his athletic socks. He's going to pity the fool that hypnotized him when he gets there, but he'll be happy. So, um, But yeah, I, I made that choice, and uh, I'm glad I did, certainly. Although, you know, there'll be some films that I'll be upset I don't get to see. It's, it's still, you know, that's the way it goes. But I was uh, lucky enough to get free tickets to see Sightseers, uh, the new Ben Wheatley film. And... Uh, truthfully, the, immediately I thought of you because uh, I Ben Wheatley and Ben. In fact, one of my notes I rather unwittingly took at the time was how Ben Wheatley is tied to you, as far as I'm concerned now, because uh, Ben Wheatley's first film, Down Terrace, mm -hmm. uh, was one that you had implored me to see before I did my year-end list. I think two or three years ago. Was it two years ago? Um, I think yeah two because that would have been the year before kill list i don't yes. think it was two years between movies because he shoots them in seven days but yeah. yeah that was a movie that really impressed me i i was lucky enough to see it in the theater here in toronto 
and he had shot it in like seven days and it was like with his editor and his editor's dad and it's just this cool little almost feels like a kitchen sink movie but with Mm -hmm. a really dark violent sense of humor yeah it definitely did and I literally it was the last movie I crammed before um, I did my year end show like two hours later and uh, I don't know if it was the pressure of ex- you know of of it you know being you know, making the grade oh and I was praising it to high heaven too, yeah when really it is just a low budget gem it's not uh, like it's not anything that's going to astound if you're pumping it up but uh, I think if you're uh, looking for a good gangster film you could do a heck of a lot worse you you could and i i am definitely going to rewatch it so that one i was like okay well you know it was probably mid six to low seven territory for me i liked it i thought wheatley showed some promise um but then kill list came along and it yeah. uh, it really really slayed me i did you see kill list at tiff i did i was okay. lucky enough to I wish I had of because I saw it also before I did my year end list. Um, I'd seen enough with with Down Terrace that I thought this guy's got a lot of talent. Um, so I saw Kill List and my um, trust in him and in you uh, was rewarded, which it always is with you. Um, Except when you fall back and I don't catch you in that game. But it's the trust so funny. In, in that trust game, that's why we usually do it on grass, not concrete. Well, I, I was going to admit to smoke and pop before do. Oh, grass. <laughs> Licorice and snacks. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so yeah, Kill List really, really knocked me on my ass. I think it's a tremendous film. I, it was, I think it was in my 10 to 15 or 10 to 20 that was in top 5 10? to 10 yeah I think oh, yeah, it made like yeah. number 9 bravo I, was, that's right. I gave a little like, yeah yeah and, and I, it, it it was incredible man I mean what a film if people haven't seen Kill List I'll let you jump into it for a minute before we get into um, Sightseers but just a tremendous film I I think it it's probably my favorite British horror film if you want to call it that I mean it's, it's weird because really which we'll talk about when we get into Sightseers he kind of um straddles a lot of lines when he when he makes films but uh it's a tremendous film uh what was the reaction like i mean at the reveal with that film it must have been just i i gotta say it was one of the most uh sort of stunned silent q a's <laughs> i've ever seen it was and it was almost uh like when he came up after i wasn't at the midnight screening which uh it's weird because Midnight Madness can be great sometimes when it's a movie like Wild Zero or something where everyone can go, yeah. But when it's sometimes stuff like Kill List or Dead Birds or, you know, the more slow, meticulous films where people want to scream and yell, but instead yep. it's this sense of dread. Sometimes that doesn't work in the midnight crowd. And that's not like uh, sometimes it does, but sometimes there's people who want to laugh at it and stuff, which can sometimes disrupt a movie like The Abandoned or something like that. So Kill List, I was kind of happy I saw it the next day because a friend who saw it at the midnight screening said there was that sense of wanting to, and I guess at the payoff with it taking such a turn, yeah, it was just a lot of stunned silence at the very end. Oh, yeah. And a lot of questions of, uh, so what did I just watch (laughs) sort of thing. Which, uh, it really holds up to repeated viewings, too. I've watched Kill This more than once, and, yeah, it really stands up. 
I want to buy the blue. I'm going to buy the blue. Um, it's. I know Rick didn't quite like it as much as I did. Well, certainly not. But but I would highly recommend everyone check it out. It's uh, it's 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 an excellent film. Certainly. I, I one of these days. Hopefully, you know, I'm sure it'll come back around on a on a revival screening or something. And I will go see it on the big screen. It's. Uh, well, I'm hoping you guys review it one day. We will. I, I've almost uh, done it a few times, and uh, you know something inevitably wins out. I think at this point, I'm trying to put a little distance between it, but mm-hmm. um, it it will be reviewed. It's, it's such a tremendous film. It really is tremendous. It says a lot. And I I think with all of Wheatley's films, it they reward multiple viewings. So yeah, absolutely. And with the subtitles on, hopefully, because <laughs> no, I I, I pride myself. Yeah, maybe at a few moments, but I pride myself that. I'm pretty good at understanding what, what's said, despite it getting very thick at times, you know. But I know uh, Rick, uh, poor Ricky, with some of the uh, the English stuff, when it gets too thick, he, he has to uh, hit that subtitle. Well, I think button. with Kill List too, um, there's so much, like for example, that dinner scene and stuff. Yeah. There's so much going on, and there's so much little hints because the ending doesn't come out of the blue. It's not like all of a sudden, and it was a time machine. It. It, yeah. There is stuff dropped throughout the movie about the ending, That's which right. I don't know if we've ever talked about the ending, but um, I remember the first time I saw it um, with the ending, I thought like, oh, that's an interesting ending. Then the more theories and stuff I heard about it, it's actually a fascinating ending. It is fascinating. Yeah. So uh, but nevertheless, um, there are hints dropped throughout it. It's like things characters might say offhand and i did find the subtitles the second time for myself who um yeah some stuff just sort of sped by me um Mm -hmm. it was kind of nice to read it ah i see yeah well there definitely he does uh disperse enough throughout the film that it certainly would enrich it especially you know when you go back and see things from different perspectives and you have the benefit of certain um being aware of certain things it definitely would would lend itself well to an enriched experience well, even sightseers, which I'll get into more when we're reviewing it, but like at the Q and A of that, when he was talking about the soundtrack of uh, of sightseers, he put a lot of thought into that, and it mirrors the film itself. And like, he doesn't. Ju- there's a lot of thought. His movies are pretty densely layered. Oh, very much so, very much so. And again, I, I won't say too much uh, about him yet. But I do want to ask you, since we didn't get a lot of TIFF coverage this year, uh, you've had the benefit of seeing a few things. If you just want to quickly run down what you have seen and what you thought of it uh, for you know those that are um, curious, which we yeah, all are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I didn't get to see much. Uh, luckily, I have a job where um, I can sort of scoot out to see a movie here and there. So I thought I was going to see no movies this year. I wound up seeing three, two which I loved Oh, well, <laughs> uh, two which I enjoyed and then one uh, that was kind of disappointing. The first one I saw was Tai Chi Zero, the Stephen Fung film. Yep. Um, it's the first part of a trilogy. I thought it was going to be two parts, but I've heard trilogy uh, booted around. But it's the story of a, uh, I guess, a historical figure, one of the founders of a certain style of Tai Chi and it's his story, but it's sort of told in a Kung Fu Hustle slash Scott Pilgrim style uh, way, which it, it sounds at first like, well, that's kind of, you know, riding on other people's coattails. Mm-hmm. But I do think the film stands very much on its own merits. And, yeah, it's just 
fun's bandied about. I've heard almost every review that talks about Tai Chi Zero calling it fun, which is writ like a there, there's no insult in calling a movie fun. No, <laughs> like, but yeah, I did. I do think like with the villain in the movie in particular, how the villain progresses, and it's it's a really good movie. So I would recommend that one pretty highly, especially if you like. Uh, martial arts films and kung fu hustle um the one i saw today with my wife uh was this new sion sono film the land of hope yeah which is about the sort of aftermath of the tsunami that hit them uh hit japan and i gotta say i was I came away disappointed. I have high expectations for Sono. I think much like I was saying about Wheatley, his movies are very densely layered. There's a lot of stuff going on, even if it's just something like Cold Fish, where you think it's, oh, it's just a true story of a serial killer. And he touches on religion and he touches on social conventions and social commentary and sex and family. And there's all this stuff crammed into his movies and love exposures and overload of that. Yeah. And hair extensions, he does a good twist on that. And this one just seemed, it seemed like all his symbolism and the things that he adds in his movies is really on the nose and really student filmy and like a lot of its melodrama, which he does almost play like an old soundtrack of silent films, a sweeping soundtrack. So I think he's aware that he's using melodrama. But in a movie that's over two hours and 20 minutes and kind of pretty much played straight because it is a huge tragedy, it's not – and I think he is taking it serious. I just think he fumbled. I don't think it's – in his uh, filmography, it's probably my least favorite um, of what I've seen. But it certainly has its moments too. It's And it's Sono. Like there's – seeing the auteur he is, you can – pick out certain things that uh, are definitely good. But, yeah, it's uh, a lot of overwrought performances, a lot of uh, – and, yeah, usually uh, what Tomiko complained about, and it's a good complaint too, is – and I mentioned uh, Ewan Samurai, how a lot of times they'll put simpletons or people with uh, mental deficiencies in Hong Kong films or Korean films sometimes too – and this is when they put a woman like with Alzheimer's sort of get that, you know, oh, isn't that sweet sort of thing that you didn't think yeah. Sona would kind of stoop to. It's interesting because he does melodrama in a way that is very overt and it's certainly intentional with someone of his skill level. And it's mm-hmm. it's interesting to me to see that he's faltered and he's almost he's aware of it, but it, it's not in the same kind of coy way that. He's used it in the past, you know? Yeah, it's – and also – and I, a lot of times you'll never hear me say this about a movie, but it is one where I would have happily seen 40 minutes been cut off it, and it would have been a better film. Because he sort of uh, keeps going back to the same – not even the same themes, but like the same conversations are repeated at different times. And it's like, okay, well, we kind of have this – piece of information and it's being brought up again but nothing new's being added to it so we're just kind of hearing the same conversation in a different way or maybe in a different location so yeah like a lot of those scenes could be condensed or cut right out and you'd lose nothing except that um when things do happen they'd hold more importance 
because you're not sort of at that point sort of battered down. I have to wonder if after the success of Cold Fish, if um, there was more studio interference, which is why this film feels the way it does. Maybe bigger budget. I don't I don't know. I, it doesn't seem like it has a big budget. And I know he did a uh, guilty of romance and he means to. Yes. As well. Um, but it, it feels, it feels very low budget. It actually feels very indie in a sense. Um, like even the camera, you can tell it's not shot on the greatest, uh, of, uh, I guess it would have been digital video or whatever. Um, but yeah, just, it really seemed like as opposed to maybe studio interference, maybe he was, cause like say something like, uh, Cold Fish, he puts his own stamp on it. Even though it's a serial killer movie, he puts his own stamp on it. I don't think his own stamp is on this one. I think maybe it's just the tsunami's too big of a thing and he just kind of wanted to show how it affected people and stuff like that. And uh, and yeah, it's it's hard to say. I don't think it, it didn't feel like studio interference. It felt like maybe he should have been told cut 40 minutes out of this right right yeah so it's hard to say and who knows like this is a film fest i haven't even read one review for this movie yet i may be it might be one of those cases where a lot of people loved it and i'm like oh geez (laughs) i guess i'm against the grain but yeah i know uh it's not terrible but it's not i somewhere in the sixes probably for me which sometimes is worse than anything when it's middling yeah, yes. Yeah. It just seemed like like okay, well I got a ticket to the Sony film saying so. And Tai Chi Zero is the one I was thinking. I hope this is good. I haven't really heard much of it. Yeah, of course. It's funny how that goes sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And then I wonder uh, what uh sightseer. I won't mention it. Exactly. Yeah. It's uh it's unfortunate I didn't get to go. There's a as I was saying to you off the air. I, on some level, consciously, subconsciously, avoided a lot of the discussion about films. Um, I did really want to see Soi Ching's Motorway, you know, being a sucker for Milky Way, as I know you're a big Milky Way guy. Um, uh, the new, uh, the two Danish films, Hostage and um, uh, the Mads Mikkels one, uh, the hunt, was it Thomas Vinterberg, uh, was it The Hunted or the something like that, where he's accused of being a pedophile? Yeah. Um, <coughs> wow. Kernel of popcorn stuck in my throat. It's amazing. It's, it's like it sounds like I'm smoking a joint. Are you falling on the grass again, man? I'm falling on the grass. Um, what other ones uh, was I kind of really keen for? Oh, the the uh, Errol Morris documentary. Despite not being a you know Errol Morris fanboy, I thought it sounded really fantastic. Just um, a bunch. I mean, all every year there's there's a myriad of films uh, to see. And the sad thing is, I, it wouldn't be so disheartening if some of them um, weren't released at a more regular clip. The problem is some of the films, even stuff like 22nd of May, which which I absolutely adored, mm-hmm. it's floating out there on the internet, but I don't think oh, it's it give, is. been given a... Yeah, yeah. I it did has not been. even know that. Yeah, it's, it's, on, it's around there, but the problem is it's a brilliant film. It was, I think, top ten for me last year, two years ago, or three years ago now. No, two years ago, maybe. Maybe three? I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. But it's still, you know, Nowhere to be found. Um, the loved one, not the loved ones. The loved one's just getting some stuff over here. Solomon Kane, which is lukewarm, but 
we said that three years ago when Rick was here at TIFF. Now it's getting theatrical here. I mean, the problem is sometimes stuff stays in limbo. Yeah. Right. So that's the way it goes. But uh, we could spend all night just kind of getting into this. I have to get up in six hours and record our regular show. I just have to uh, smooch my wife. So let's jump into this. I will... Do you want me to lead on this one, or do you? Would you how yeah, I actually wouldn't uh, wouldn't mind you leading. That would be great. Sure. Okay. So. Do you want me to read the plot synopsis? That'd be great. I can eat more popcorn that I can choke on then. Okay. Add synopsis. Um, I will have to write it as I read. Oh no, there we go. Uh, Chris wants to show girlfriend Tina his world, but events soon conspire against the couple, and their dream caravan holiday takes a very wrong turn. That's terrible. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, it's not so much that the world turns against them, but they kind of turn against the world. But anyway, so, you, that's the one right on. I I don't know if you're on it. I am. Yeah, that's completely. If you were to do the exact opposite of that synopsis, it would it'd be, be accurate. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, as I said, my only film of TIFF 2012. Um, cautiously optimistic uh i hadn't seen anything uh, you know really hadn't shit the bed for me and certainly after kill list i had a renewed um kind of uh you know top of the charts from anything he for he did i was going to keep an eye on um I, in fact i did know he was making this this year um it was a tiff and i had an eye on it um the thing i like about his films is they all maintain a certain level of kitchen sinkiness even kill list he does something very fascinating with his films, which I'll talk about probably more as I go. And so what you is he takes with the kitchen sink type stuff, which um, like neorealism, essentially, um, it, it takes the mundane and he can frame the mundane in a way that when he juxtaposes it with fantastical things that happen, be it um, absurdly humorous or uh, bleakly uh or, or, you know, pitch black uh, or just absolutely brutal and unrelenting. Um, he, he juxtaposes those in a way. It's just, it's really unlike most filmmakers working nowadays. They tend to have, it's not a Hong Kong sensibility, certainly by any means, but the way the way he's able to straddle a lot of lines and dip his toe in a lot of genres in one film, uh, I've found very fascinating with the first three films he's done. Um, yeah, and he's always, a lot of times... I was thinking when you were bringing up the kitchen sink scenes of the dinner scene in Kill List, um, where the threat, like, you really don't even know what's going on at that point, except that this guy has a bad back, he can't get the hot tub working, and him and his (laughs) wife aren't getting along, and uh, they need money. And that dinner scene, when he turns the plate over and stuff, he can, even if you don't know what the threat is, he has this sense of dread running through Absolutely. like he really has his own unique voice he can have a domestic dispute scene and it's not just a domestic dispute scene even if you don't know what it is you know there's something more to it and he does that through you know sound design his editing uh he's you know i he's really honed his craft in short films and stuff and uh yeah even just the way he edits and he might cut to someone when they're not talking and just giving a look. And yeah, it's, uh, he's definitely has his own voice. I've much like you, I've seen these kind of scenes before, but I've never seen them told this way. He, uh, 
he, I think he's one of the most talented filmmakers working today. Now, whether that is going to, um, it, whether that's going to be reflective of how I feel about the film as a whole or not remains to be seen. But um, I, I just find him to be tremendously talented. Like you said, I think he got his background in TV. He did some short films, which I think you need to have that economy and that being very mindful of of uh, being able to to get across what you want aesthetically, thematically, and otherwise in a very short time. Um, he's honed that just to the to to you know to perfection. Yeah, uh, you really so. Well, he's he's way up in my list of like directors who I could hear he's directing anything at a certain this point and like oh I just see it because. I know I'm in capable hands, essentially. Absolutely. Now, something I always hear the British films is uh, the national lottery funding. Do you know how that system works? Because I'm not overly f- – I mean, I could take a stab at it, no pun intended, I guess, but um, – I don't know how it works. My, I certainly could have a guess at it, which I imagine a certain amount of the lottery money goes towards – Governing the arts for arts and stuff mm-hmm. like that, but no, I don't. I don't know for sure, but I see that in front of so many great films. Yeah, really interesting. Uh, maybe here in Canada, we need to get behind that man instead of the super. Yeah. Throw some of that Super Seven money. If you don't win the lottery, you get a good movie. You win either way. Exactly, exactly. So, um, the cast in this film, for me anyway. Now, he makes films that feel very distinctly British, but at a way you know, but. Despite them being very British, they never um, they never feel uh, exclusive or yeah. mutually inclusive. Like you, you can be an American or Canadian or whomever, and still be thrust into the world and and engage in this uh, world cinematically. But it, it still feels very distinct to what to, to Britain, to England. Absolutely, and even <laughs> one of my notes here is. Uh, Really, only in Britain could you have uh, the main character Tina sort of finds herself and you know becomes, in a sense, freer and stuff um, on a sightseeing tour of pencil museums <laughs> and like historical sites and stuff. It's the it all seems so sort of stodgy, sort of. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it has a very British feel, but yet at the same time. There's not anyone who couldn't relate to at least something that's going on. Yeah, and that's the thing I really love about the film is that, and it should be said too, Edgar Wright produced this film. And I do also want to add that from the stuff I've read about the film, uh, Wheatley came on as sort of a gun for hire. Like this wasn't even yeah. something he was necessarily going to take part in. And he came on, and you know, in short order, he he made turned out a film that, despite it, you know, coming on to something that wasn't really his gives it a very distinct Wheatley um, feel. So that's, again, it, it's, it's the mark of a filmmaker that you know, you're really in good hands with. Um, go ahead. Yeah, oops, I guess the actors, uh, there is a short film, Sightseers, I guess, that the actors, Steve Orham and Alice Lowe, they, they did, and they got, Edgar Wright got interested, and then Wheatley got interested. But I, I think that shows a lot about Wheatley, too, that he can go off and make this film that he never wrote or anything and yeah like you said it comes out of ben wheatley film you'd never guess this is a gun for hire film no but i think it's he treats the material he when he was up there doing the q a he was just praising the actors and praising the like he he really uh respects the material Mm -hmm. he really does um 
Gun for Hire stuff is usually very anonymous, but yeah, definitely not with this. Um, I know that him having a TV background, I think Alice Lowe, who plays Tina, mm-hmm. and I can't remember Chris's name, Rupert something, or... Is it not Steve? Steve Orham? Oh, right, right. Okay, again, I'm not familiar with him. Again, our Br- British listeners may be. I know these guys, I know um, uh, Alice Lowe was in Hot Fuzz. I don't remember what she is, quite frankly. I've only seen it a few times. Um, she was in Kill List. Um but uh, wow, this can... IMDb page is terrible. I don't even see Chris and Tina listed. Oh, they're, they're the only ones that don't have their names listed for some reason. Oh, okay. So, yeah, Alice Lowe and Steve Orham. Mm-hmm. So, Steve Orham looks decidedly different in his um, IMDb photo than he does in the film. And I like that Wheatley casts people again to get back to the sort of kitchen sink aesthetic. They look like real people. Oh, I mean, no. you know, it's not um, Colin Farrell and Naomi Watts, or no, they're two fantastic actors. But yeah. It's but there's it's, something about um, even the people in Kill List. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hitman doesn't look like a hitman. At first, he does look like a disgruntled husband who maybe works in a factory or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, probably a lot of times, uh, with me anyway, when. Uh, people don't have movie star good looks um i get i believe the character more absolutely and i tend to enjoy the film more um i know film is a you know is a departure and so forth but it's just nice to have that because it it, it comes kind of full circle that it becomes a little more relatable and immerses you more in the world to have people look real instead of just absurdly beautiful people and there's nothing wrong with the one to look at beautiful people but there's a time and place for that so um But yeah, I mean, you can really feel his TV experience. I think when you watch this film, you can definitely, his, his short film experience, he's, everything he's done, he's brought to the table and really done it well. And even things like uh, the way the houses are designed, like uh, early on, we see the film opens up with Alice and her mom, and her mom's a bit of a, um, how can I put it politely? She She's one of those mothers that really has her hooks in her daughter. Her daughter hasn't really, she's a bit of a wallflower, and she likes to knit. And he, he, he paints a pretty vivid – there's some pretty good payoffs with the knitting too. Oh, it's um, fantastic. Um, but there is a definite sense of, of what kind of relationship her and her mother have. It's it's um, not Grey Gardens-esque certainly, but you, know, the, you can tell that the social skills of the daughter aren't very well honed and the mother preys on that. Yeah. And she lays guilt trips on her, and but it, the, what I was getting at was even the house, the way it's decorated. You know, a lot of times you you know you can get a sense when a film feels uh, or a house feels overly dressed, and this it just feels very lived in. And it, again, it works very well. Yeah, you could walk in that house and not think like, oh, you could use this for a movie, like to shoot a movie. And it's no, you wouldn't think anything about the house. No. It feels just like any house you could walk into. Yeah, absolutely. Without like. You know, the stainless steel appliances and everything else. Um, you mentioned this technique that really employs. and I'm I like how you say you mentioned this technique, then you spit. I didn't. I, I, I Well, I guess I did kind of spit. Um, you mentioned this technique. <coughs> okay, moving on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The Iron Sheik's doing a review. Um, <laughs> but uh, you mentioned the technique that uh, Wheatley employs that I really like that he uses a lot in films and when filmmakers can use this technique effectively it really works and that's the technique of um, doing like a voiceover with a character despite them doing something else in the scene oh and that pays off more sometimes you get more out of just seeing him 
uh, when he's talking. Uh, I don't know. I'm, this isn't in Wheatley's movie. This is just me making something up. But say looking in the mirror. Mm-hmm. And, the, and you get more emotion and what you're supposed to be feeling from that cutaway than you would seeing him say it. Yes. Absolutely. So, no, he's he's a master at that. Now, you bring up editing. So I think people who've been listening long enough know that we've kind of we've touched on the fact that you work uh, in editing. I don't think that's how they do. Um, as a layman who likes films, I feel, and you can tell me what you think, his films are impeccably edited, uh, be it for comedic effect or otherwise. Um, I don't know whether I've said it already, but his films are masterfully edited. I don't like over editing for the most part. Like a lot of times I'm like, Hey, you're telling me a story. Let me enjoy it. Stop trying to distract me. Yeah. Showy editing is, is really distracting. Like it, yeah. that's the problem is that sometimes in this day and age, that you kind of editing uh, is, is very fatiguing. Oh yeah. And it's like, you're, it's being edited by someone who's scared. It's yes. he's scared. You're going to be bored for 10 seconds. So he's got to, you know, like cut to this and cut to that and show that it's someone who's terrified their movie sucks in a lot of cases of uh, this over editing. It's like, yeah, we don't trust the actors. We don't trust this scene to keep your attention. It's a lot of times. uh, Yeah, it's almost disrespectful to the film. Um, Maybe that's overreacting. But a lot of times when I see that, I do think like, wow, you don't really have faith in much or the editor wanted to be the star of the show. But with Wheatley, it's much like I was saying with how he chooses a score and this and that. There's thought put into every cut. Like, it's not just him being afraid. It's him telling the story in the most effective way possible. And he's got his style of telling a story that the editing just complements incredibly. He's he's a really good filmmaker. And the editing in his movies might be up there with my favorite editing in modern film right now. Yeah, I'd say that's a pretty fair statement. Um, it, it is, but I, I'm trying to think, like, right now, my favorite filmmakers, Henneke, um, Gaspar Noe, Raimi. <laughs> like, and when I think of them, I think editing, or I think uh, directing, I think screenplay. But, yeah, when we, I think of Wheatley, editing's one of the first things that pops up. Yeah, and I mean, even for me, someone who maybe doesn't have as trained an eye, well, certainly nowhere near as trained an eye as you do, but someone who can still appreciate the craft of film, for me to really appreciate that shows, you know, a job well done. Like I said, without it being showy, because yeah, there's nothing worse than being showy sometimes. When, especially when the material would, would um, it kind of contradicts the material and the, the whole aesthetic of the film. But yeah, um, I have to say, I think I, I can't remember now uh, if it's the house that um, Alice Lowe's character lives in or not. But maybe it is. There's there's a scene when they're in the kitchen, and I have to think. I made it. I thought, wow, that's the kitchen from the principal character in Down Terrace. So I don't know if this is a situation much like um, John Carpenter did sometimes, I think, with The Fog and a few other films where he shot in his own apartment, and I, you know, whether it was LA or wherever. Um, but there's a moment where it feels like it's the same house from Down Terrace. And I don't know if this is just like being Ben Wheatley's like parents' house or something, but it felt like it was the exact same kitchen. I would sh- not be shocked. I've listened to the Down Terrace commentary, and I know it's like either his his friend's house, his parents' house, or like um, the character, the real house. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the one in Down Terrace feeling more cramped. Yeah, um, maybe so, yeah. But, no, I, I could definitely see 
him dipping like he he said said in the Q&A and you can see it he goes to the same actors again and again too so like he's not uh, he if he likes something he's happy to return to it and let me ask you that brings up an interesting point most directors that we love do have a go-to stable can, like can you think of a director that you love that doesn't have a, a go-to stable of actors because I can't think of any or too many off the top of my head maybe other than than Kubrick um it's hard to say maybe it would be someone like who doesn't have that many films to his name so Malik or someone yeah um geez yeah when I think of any like for example Gaspar Noe but even him with Philip Nahon whoop yep Philippe Nahon yeah um and he's only got three movies to his name so no but it, it is true when you think of uh certain directors uh i think probably the better ones that if something works for them they're not afraid to go back and use it again and again yeah absolutely they're like they don't have that ego where you know for example oh it was me and not de niro that's right taxi driver Mm -hmm. which maybe some directors would like oh i don't need to get this person back i i don't know what goes on in their heads but yeah i think it's always nice i remember Speaking of Raimi, when Danny Elfman uh, came out and started saying all that stuff about Raimi, like, oh, he's changed and this and that, when he left after Spider-Man 3 because of the Christopher Williams, um, is it who he did Hellraiser? I don't know. I'd be lying if I said I knew. But nevertheless, I remember him coming out and saying all this stuff about Sam Raimi not being the same guy and this and that. But when you look at Raimi's career of him hiring his family, hiring the same people over and over again, Elfman included. It just made it so hard to believe, like, really? <laughs> Are you sure it's not you, Danny? Like, yeah. sour grapes? It seemed like so many people were just, I kind of don't believe this. And I think that's when you do see someone work again and again with the same people, it also shows they're probably, you know, eat. It's the set's probably a nice place to go to. Like, For sure. Yeah, it's he's probably a good director with actors and stuff, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, yeah, as much as uh, <clears throat> Wheatley relies on a certain aesthetic and a certain neorealist slant, there's t- he really has an eye for a moment, too. Like, there's a a moment with a balloon in slow motion. Like, it, this, I mean, for me, he's just brimming with talent. And it's like, I, I just can't wait to see what else he's going to be able to do and stretch his legs with. Because, like I said, there's that little moment with <laughs> with a balloon that's, that's pretty good. And it's pretty beautiful. Um, but... Yeah, really great eye. Um, yeah, oddly, I'll just uh, pipe in for one second. He does have another movie at uh, Chip this year. No way. That ABCs of Death he has oh. segment in. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking very forward to seeing what he does in four minutes. Yeah, that's right, because there's like 26 directors. So well, it is the ABCs. So. Yeah. So I, I can't remember what letter he has, but yeah, he does one of the segments in it. So. Um, that that was one I wanted to see, but just the timing, I can see it. Midnight Madness, I presume, obviously. Yeah, it was Midnight Madness, and I don't think it played like during the day, um, which would have been the only other time I could see it. Right. Um, I'm just going to say two words, and and you'll know what I mean by this, and that is, of course, mint me. <laughs> yeah, the, it's a nice uh, nice touch, and I have uh, like their relationship. It's uh, I don't I don't know when you and Teresa started dating. I remember when me and Tomiko started dating, 
one of the like once we sort of got in a little way, it was suggested to me and we did this to go on a camping trip um, before like we ever thought of moving in or getting married or anything like go on a camping trip. See how you guys get along together. Excellent. And we did. And, you know, we kind of staying in a tent over the long weekend and stuff. We've it's a really good way of seeing if you get along. So I like that, that, you know, it's this new couple going on this sightseeing tour to sort of, it's a test a lot of the times, like, okay, can we take this to the next level? Um, can we get along in this caravan for the weekend? And uh, what was your initial point? <laughs> Just, I think he captures the... Um the kind of it's 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 a dry humor, but just the kind of again, sort of the absurd little things that couples do. He's spot on with yeah. it, like mint me, like hey, couples That's have their, exactly it. Yeah, they have their cute little moments or their things with each other, like. And that shows when it became a moment too, which is yes. kind of nice. You see when it becomes one, and then when absolutely, it one. yeah, it pays off quite well. You know, I mean, not a huge thing. It's a quiet little thing, but it's it's certainly enriched. Um, so yeah, I don't want to say I don't want to spoil the. The one payoff with um, something that uh, that Tina knits. Um, oh yeah, it's in the trailer. Is it? Yeah. Should we talk about it or no? You know what? It's not going to ruin the movie. It would ruin a laugh. Ah, uh, let's not. Let's not. That's right, because a lot of trailers give up too much, and they give up the goods. So I will move on from that. And that was a. But it's in. very funny. It is. And I love the line that follows that when she presents what she's knitted. And she says, "It's you know, it's not just an erotic odyssey we're on." There's such a ridiculous line. Yeah, it's uh, there's a lot of very funny lines in the film. Like just the audience was never five minutes without laughing. But the thing that's great about Wheatley too is you have this movie that we're making it seem like oh, it's a ball, it's a lot of fun. But when he goes dark, he goes full dark. Like uh, when Season of the Witch starts playing, like he uh, does has a covers of Season of the Witch or um, Jerusalem, when those start playing and some of the murder scenes are friggin' harsher than like in some, you know, hardcore horror films. The way it's edited and the atmosphere and how sound design. Oh, it's brilliant. And it's really, really dark. Like it's not when it goes dark, it doesn't uh, like it, I guess the first and this is what I like about the film a lot is Wheatley sort of at first gets you on their side um, with the first, we can mention that they're murderers that eventually Chris is revealed to be a murderer. I guess I've mentioned it, but uh, that's, um, I think it's one of the main points of the film. Yeah. Um, so when it, when he loses his temper the first time we're, clearly on his side it's a guy from down terrace actually who's kind of a slob and (laughs) (laughs) he's doing something that would anger a lot of us and it's almost like this um almost a commentary on our judgmental generation too of like self-righteousness too oh yeah absolutely but when the shoe's on the other foot with the dog excrement suddenly they're you know um but yeah, he gets us on their side almost in a way of like, yeah, I can't blame him for doing that. And it's funny. And then when it goes dark, um, yeah, you can't really be on his side that much. You kind of he's revealed for what he is, which, yeah. you know, reveals us for like 
you know, going along with them too. Sure. Yeah, no, it definitely does. Um, a lot of social politics, some of it very British, but some of it is not broad in a drug trade way, but is is just sort of universal, I guess is a better term. Um, it's more universal, just down to the sort of, the sort of elitist yuppie couple in their matching gray tracksuits. Absolutely. It's pretty great. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, the way he intercuts, yeah, he, he does violence in all three films uh, as good as most, I mean, he, he has that knack for doing violence in a way that is very matter of fact, and it looks great without ever feeling, um, without ever feeling like it's it's just being showy or it's not uh, fetishized. It's just it's brutal and it's great cinematically without feeling cinematic. It feels kind of how you think violence would feel. I agree, and with every one of his films too, um, there seems to be that standout scene. I'm, you've noticed I've gotten quieter. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's always like the hammer and kill list. There's a scene Ooh. in this with violence. It's like it's pretty, <laughs> pretty violent, and of course you're gonna leave remembering it. Mm-hmm. And even one of the deaths in, uh, in Down Terrace is very memorable too. He always seems to have that one that you sort of walk away going like, "Holy crap!" Uh, the the one violent scene that stands out. But mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of his vi- it he does not shy away. No, he doesn't. And uh, just the way he undercuts like an egg cracking with something else cracking and it's just it's just brutal and again it's darkly comic but it's, it's very incredible crafted and mm-hmm. um he does he really employs like as much as he employs sort of these lived in working class uh houses and stuff uh and motels he really employs um the British countryside quite nicely like it's it's staggeringly beautiful to see like oh, a lot of this stuff yeah, it really is uh, a lot of the it, – it sounds boring. Like I remember hearing like, oh, it's a couple going on a sightseeing tour of Britain and it's like, you know. Oh, wow, sign music. me up. Part, yeah. <laughs> it's like I wouldn't do that in real life. Why would I want to do that in a movie? <laughs> but uh, the way he films it, yeah, it certainly seems like I would not mind going to England and visiting the sites they went to. Yeah, it really is nice. Um and uh, I love the one line again. It's very, it, it, it very comical. You know, again the sort of the gender politics and the dynamic in relationship. He says to um, Chris says to Tina, "Oh yeah, honey, you know you should buy something. You know, you goes, you can have anything you want. Choose anything you want as long as it's under ten quid." You know? <laughs> it's just that you know that kind of thing. I just I, I kind of chuckled pretty good at that, especially being with my wife. So. Oh yeah, you know. <laughs> Don't go crazy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the church again. The church. I think it's 13th century. I, don't, I, I made a point to try to look it up, but I didn't get a chance to. But the church, very nice old 13th century church. Um, there's a bit I laughed at, probably the hardest. It's during a sex scene, and uh, <laughs> it, it, I don't think this is spoiling thing because you don't really know when it's going to come necessarily. Uh, no pun intended it being a sex scene and all but there's a moment when a dog starts licking someone's ass hilarious oh my god I have nobody calls a dog <laughs> yeah yeah it's really good it's really fantastic um he shoots nighttime really well you know something I noticed between not so much in Down Terrace but with this and in Kill List he has a way you mentioned it sort of I think generally speaking with, with his, his stuff early on but he has a real knack for 
shooting things in a way, um, or with any of his films, he he always is able to capture the essence or the tone perfectly. Like there's something very ominous and threatening about the nighttime here. You know, you see night in a lot of films, and it just it just really doesn't register anything emotionally. But he has a way to really capture the immediacy and the threat of of the sort of veil of darkness of nighttime in this film. Yeah, without without question, when nighttime comes in his films, it's it it almost seems like uh, it's a different world <laughs> in the daytime. Like it's they've entered a new world, yeah, where everything's dangerous. Yep, definitely. There's a glass unicorn in this, which seems to be a recurring thing between Charles Bronson buying one for his daughter in Death Wish Two, to me finding one at a truck stop in Ohio. Nice. Turning and seeing one. I even tagged Sammy in a picture of one actually on Facebook. <laughs> Took a picture of it. People thought must that I was a fucking idiot taking a picture of this glass unicorn. Um, but yeah, just you're going to uh, be saying glass unicorn on your deathbed, and some news reporter is going to try and find <laughs> out what it means. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the attack again on the upper crust is very apparent, and Chris okay. is very vocal about that. The one scene I feel like where um, really overplays his hand a little bit as I, t- I think they take like there's a scene with the at, um, with the dog shit and I think he overplays it a little bit with the me. excuse he makes with the, ex- with the excuses no I could see the character of Chris having a sense of that a self uh, justification but self-righteousness self-righteousness I could see that but I just think some of the like the lines and the way he kind of goes on and on about it and oh did he do this and did he touch you like it just it, that's the only moment I feel like he overplays himself a little overextends the, the, the comedic aspect a little bit much for me see I found that scene got a little and I know it was played for laughs because they released that clip yeah but I found it became like it started out funny yes like, uh, yes and it became like Uncomfortable, like, uh, and when the guy just walks away at a certain point, you're cut, like, you're not on Chris's and Tina's side at that point. Precisely, like, and he's a hypocrite, and maybe it's intentional because Wheatley's good enough, but it just, I felt kind of out of line with the rest of the film tonally. Well, even with the dog excrement, how that mirrored the litter. Oh, precisely uh, the hypocrisy of it. Yeah, like I, I don't think Wheatley does want us to be completely on Chris's and Tina's side throughout the whole movie. And yeah, I found that that scene, it was sort of, cause uh, I don't think we're spoiling in any, anything saying, you know, the relationship goes through problems and that's kind of when it, when it starts. Yes. Um, and that seems mirrored later when uh, she's talking to the guy with the bicycle. Oh, which is pretty trying- funny. Yeah, she's trying to do the same thing. So it's uh, I, I found it got uncomfortable. But uh, are you are you talking about the performance more, like how he started uh, getting really aggressive? That and I just think some of the lines, like some of the the comedy of the moment, didn't work for me. I felt like it overplayed okay. his hand. Like, oh, and he touched me, and he did this, and he did that, and oh yes, okay. Yes. Like, I just kind of felt like a bit a bit try hard, you know. And Wheatley to me is better than that. Minor gripe, but I, I can agree with that. I think, um, you know, it got ridiculous what she was saying when I think uh, he put the dog's balls in his mouth or something like, along that lines, where like, uh, yeah, that 
it didn't maybe have to go so outrageous so fast. Exactly, exactly. Um, we get the quote. I think it's from this. There's these bridesmaids we see, but I think they yell, "One in the pink, one in the stink." <laughs> well, my question is, where are the other three going? Um, maybe they're lookouts. I don't know. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> Anyone knows it's four in the stink, one in the pink. <laughs> well, I didn't know, but now I do. Yes. Tama goes in for a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Tree says in about 20 minutes. <laughs> this is why we're not recording another episode, apparently. Um, but uh, yeah, he cuts and sees with violence very well. Um, I got to cut through these ones pretty quickly because I just, okay. I got the look. Um, <laughs> speaking of four in the pink, no. What in the mind. world could make a brighter girl turn blue? Yes. <laughs> I think those are the lyrics. Yes. I, I think you are right. Uh, the big scribbler pencil. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Hilarious, yeah. Love it. Uh, you know, this is the the, the the pencil factory that we keep hearing about. I'm going to do a tour of. There's some f- f- uh, music in the film. He uses a lot of uh, 80s pop. He uses Soft Cell, which is a piece of music that is very overdone, but works in this film quite well, Tainted Love. Uh, and he uses a piece by Freddie. Uh, Freddie. Frankie goes to Hollywood, um, which we're going to close the show with. Um, really tremendous piece of music, but he uses '80s popularly. Well, but there's a moment when they got some sort of like driving carpenter synthy stuff late near the back of the film that works pretty well. Yeah, I think he was saying because um, I guess he's a big, and I don't know that much about. Uh, it's the new new wave of British music. Is it uh, dubstep? Uh, no, it's like the stuff like Frankie goes to Hollywood and stuff. Um, but he always thought that started in British, but then, or in Britain, but he found out it was actually the Krautrock started that. Well, even before them, I think, yeah, I guess it would have been Krautrock and then Detroit with the techno boom in the late seventies or mid seventies with Juan Atkins and Derek Mann, all them. So he tried to, uh, layer some kraut rock in there and stuff as well because uh it was just stuff he was interested in at the time and then like i i love the cover pussy of, uh, <laughs> pussy yeah what were you gonna say <laughs> i was gonna say um just because you said i love oh okay <laughs> did you just call me a pussy no no i had to fill in the blank for for your for your um uh, legendary proclamation because you went I love pussy that is true I love I love felines I love felines um, but yeah the, his uh, I love the Donovan uh, they do a couple covers of uh, Season of the Witch that are yes. really effective too um, and he was saying with the covers how how Tina sort of starts the reason he decided to use covers is Tina starts getting more involved in Chris's lifestyle and starts copying some of and essentially stealing Chris's lifestyle. And that's why he decided to use covers in some scenes because of Tina's um, relationship with Chris and how she sort of becomes a cover version of him in a way. Yeah. A bastardized cover. Yeah, absolutely. So Um, not only are they great songs in the, in the film, but there's like thought put into it. Like even just with the, is it new age, new wave of yeah, new wave. Like, yeah. Yeah. Even that there's thought put into it. New age is more, I think like Ravi Shankar and 
stuff like that maybe I don't know um, but yeah new wave the, the British new wave um, even just the way he looks at like the domestic squabbles and he sort of appropriates the day to day stuff into their squabbles about murder and and, um, and methods and so forth uh, he has a really good ear for music though like he's the kind of guy I think that you know we talk about Tarantino soundtrack soundtracks which are great and Scorsese and these guys but like Ben Wheatley seems like the kind of guy that as is like a little side project could do a music blog and it would be eclectic and fascinating to to follow. Yeah, absolutely. I think for sure he uh I think with all his movies they have a really the scores they could be good enough to be listened to on their own, but they could also easily um oh sorry, it's like just moving rooms here. Um <laughs> They could also easily be, uh, and here I go. All right, sorry. They they're they're good on like a soundtrack, but they're they also help the movie. They yeah. enhance the movie too. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I was just going downstairs there, so I kind of got a little bit of verbal diarrhea. No, it's cool, man. No, I, I get you. I'm with you. Like standalone or. As part of a package to enhance, they work quite well. Um, my last note is, I just think that Wheatley really has style to burn. Like, I think um, with this film, he did as much as he could with the subject matter. Um, for me, the subject matter inherently has a ceiling that keeps it from being sort of masterpiece uh, film, but yeah, that it's been a, a story dipped into many times by like mm. Bonnie and Clyde, Natural Born Killers, Bad totally. all that stuff, and and not just even that aspect, but I just think that the sort of the dark romantic comedy, like there's just a certain inherent um, ceilings uh, for me that I, I can only give it such a score, and I, no matter how good it is, because of what it is. Like there's certain themes that tend to work better and can sort of soar higher cinematically, but. With the material Wheatley has, it's very apparent to anyone who admires the craft of filmmaking, or the crafts, plural, involved with filmmaking, that this is a guy who really, really is something to watch. Even if even if you're lukewarm on the material, I think you'll get enough from Wheatley and the way he does things to say, man, this guy's definitely someone to watch. Because when he, when he has that one big hit that everyone's going to be just going bananas over, it's going to really pop. Because he, he has every tool to be mentioned in the same breath as your P.T. Andersons and and all these guys. Just a tremendous, tremendous filmmaker. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I'll plow through my notes. You're done? Yes, yes. Um, I, I love how at the beginning that you were saying the mother's very, uh, <laughs> very nosy and pokes her head and everything. And even with the beginning, how the score's playing and you hear this moaning oh, and the mother won't so even let good. this won't even let the score go without her somehow interrupting it like intruding on the score even um i found it, it's really strange how all wheatley's films like i i guess they all deal with violent men mm-hmm. or and violent women in some cases i think all cases um Bless but you. It seems that spiritualism in all of them plays a big deal too. With Down Terrace, um, the father is like an old hippie who, you know, he talks about psychedelics 
Yes. With Kill List. I won't say much about the spiritualism in there, but um, it's very obvious um, <laughs> once you get to the end. And in Sightseers, the shaman scene yeah, um, really, totally. really starts the movie off and, you know, starts it on its way to becoming what it is. Like there's, as I said, the sort of fun scene before the shaman scene of, oh, haha look what he did but then after that it sort of goes to a whole new level and i think yeah wheatley he's definitely got his uh or his mind i think there's something with uh spiritualism shamanism that uh fascinates him and i I wonder if those that'll keep popping up in his future films yeah Um, that's right i completely agree yeah and also just the fact that he's going to these historic sites and stuff so Mm -hmm. um you know, old churches, churches and I like not Stonehenge in particular, but like Stonehenge, like that. Yeah, Ru- exactly. I almost called it Stonehenge. And I think they even talk about Lee lines and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to say it's uh, telling how uh, almost pitiful Tina's life must have been before this caravan that the fact that like uh, a pencil factory tour and like all these very British things like open her up and see the world in a literally way. and figuratively. Yeah, it's it's very much so. It's um, it's a case of <laughs> yeah, it's like fucking Viva Las Vegas for her when she gets to go. Yeah, it's it's crazy, and it just kind of shows how sad her life must have been before that. Um, I do like how the justifications and the murders seem very modern. Yeah, um, totally. Like with murders being green and, you know, against the people with power who in the past, like almost like an anti-corporate rate. Oh, totally. Uh, they, very much um, or, was it, um, like an Occupy X city person. <laughs> yeah. And like litter bugs. But as soon as the shoes on the other foot, how yeah. like they just overlook that. Of course. Um, which I think is a very, I think. Apt. Accurate. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was saying, even though it's a breezy, funny film, when it gets dark, it gets really dark. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, I, there was a dream sequence in it that I thought was a lot of fun. And even the, uh, well, not a lot of fun. It was chilling in parts, too. And even when it shows him, when he's thinking about that couple, that the writer who's written three books. Three books. <laughs> um, when it shows him lying in bed stewing about it that's another <laughs> moment of like great editing and yeah. you can just see it rising and rising yeah <laughs> um the performances i loved oh yeah spot um, on <laughs> i wonder what wheatley thinks of dog people <laughs> they oh, really I are know. psychopaths when people say i like my dogs you know i think i like dogs better than humans i think these people like dogs better than humans too it's funny because there's the there's that little subplot with uh was it poppy not not ben banjo banjo poppy yeah poppy was the original yeah yeah and uh just how when she gets poppy quote unquote and she's like oh and they didn't want you to have any fun or she says something like that and she goes to feed her a chip it, it is funny sort of social stuff that we all see day to day that it becomes very humorous when when in able hands yeah and uh, this isn't a spoiler but right at the very beginning obviously something happened with poppy to poppy yeah yeah and she feels more guilty about what happened to a dog <laughs> yeah than what happened like 
the things she does later on, which she does right until the end. And as I think I wrote on my Facebook thing, this has one of my favorite endings. It is, yeah, very good. I, I it got a great reaction in the theater. Oh yeah, I can, it would. It, it, I didn't see it coming. My wife did, but I didn't. <laughs> yeah, and so maybe a lot of guys wouldn't see that coming. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like how Wheatley doesn't really feel the need to stick tonally to sort of that genre. Like he doesn't mind going and making it really dark. He doesn't mind going on, you know, like just taking right turns and left turns. He doesn't, it it makes for a more interesting film when he's not, when he could give a shit about conventions and And just does what he wants to with the story. Like I'm, you know, he's not, as I said, it's not like a UFO is going to land in the middle of it, but still. Well, that's the thing that's so, yeah, that's, that's why I said Hong Kong. Like, he, he doesn't make Hong Kong films, but the way he just, he kind of sprinkles in several different genres into one film so effortlessly. That's a slippery slope. I mean, that's not, not too many filmmakers can pull that off. And usually, you most people will complain about the tone change. Like, oh, I was really enjoying it up until that scene. And then, mm-hmm. whereas I think he, uh, personally, I think he does it amazingly. Oh, yeah. I think even if, when watching Down Terrace before it becomes a sort of black, violent um, comedy that it eventually becomes. Um, yeah, it it really does take a left turn at a certain point when someone locks himself in a washroom and has to be <laughs> out. Yeah. Um, I know I was talking someone with the Amazing Spider-Man movie was talking about like, oh, you know, it's ultimately about love. And uh, I was like, well, you know, in all honesty, most Hollywood movies are ultimately like, why would I be surprised that Spider-Man is about love? Like, yeah. You have to have that in every movie, it seems like and everyone always acts surprised when a movie. Oh, but it's really a love story at heart. <laughs> but I did. I really like the love story in this, and maybe yeah. it's because it's a bit cynical and you know real. But sure, yeah. Because when you get the dynamic of the the, the buddy introduced, yeah, um, and yeah, even her uh, not knowing what he wants. Oh. Sorry, there's one line. Hang on, wait. It's okay. There's one you- line. You're there. Sorry, there's one line, one quote I have to mention. Um, when someone implores another character to shit in their hand and use it as brown lipstick on them, I fucking howled. Shit in my hand and use it as brown lipstick. <laughs> Fantastic. And Sorry. Said, oh yeah, it's very very funny. <laughs> And once again, it's like a scene that's kind of uncomfortable, too. Oh, very much so. And uh, my last note here is I do like how Wheatley makes the killers likable. Because honestly, there's so many times I watch movies with unlikable characters seemingly nowadays that this could have easily fallen into these people do one thing and you don't like them anymore. And I don't think it's important to like people in the film. Like you don't, you're watching a movie, you're not becoming Facebook friends with them or so. That's right. <laughs> um, but at the same time, a lot of times when you have the killers or have this or that, they filmmakers have a, 
idea that like, oh yeah, and they can be assholes. And it's just that these people kind of remain likable throughout the whole movie, even as they're doing stuff is great credit to everyone involved in the creative part of the film. And how our, our maybe allegiances shift between the two mm-hmm. at times and our sympathies and yeah. Interesting. For sure. For sure. But uh, that's my notes. Okay. Uh, make a break. Uh, gosh, there's a lot of great scenes in the film. Um, a lot of great lines, a lot of great moments. The end for me really caps it off nicely, though. It, uh, pleasant surprise. Well, maybe not so pleasant surprise. Uh, but it just, <laughs> it, it's really good stuff. Uh, my MVT is Wheatley. Uh, like I said, I think that um, in the wrong hands, this kind of film could have been pretty terrible. Yeah, uh, we've seen it botched. This kind of film botched so many times before, and you know, it, it just it doesn't always work. Uh, score for the film is a seven point five out of ten. Like I don't think this is a world beater, but it's very enjoyable, and it's the kind of film that there are, if there are a lot of special features and Wheatley talking about the filmmaking and stuff, I'd probably buy. Um, that's why I was saying earlier on that to me Wheatley, and not to not to diminish the film because it is a very good film, but I feel like Wheatley's skills certainly outstrip the ceiling that the film has as material like Wheatley to me like you know he, he could be a world beater and you know this is like a good film not to say it's beneath him it's not but you know what I mean like it just feels like given, the, given a masterpiece yes he'll you know he can paint he's got a few masterpieces in him I feel yeah yeah this this film uh, it doesn't have the material to make it a 10 or right. I guess 9 but yeah it certainly has I, I know what you're saying. It's, uh, but yeah, if he was given a script that was a ten, he wouldn't botch it. He wouldn't screw it up. That's right. Or if he winds up writing it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Oh, sorry. You, yeah. Are you done? That's it. Done. Ski. Okay. My make or break would be the second murder. Um, I was really enjoying it up till that point, but uh, with the second murder, when it becomes really dark all of a sudden. Um, that was the sort of thing that excites me about uh, Wheatley's filmmaking. It's yes. the one where he uh, puts on his coat and he yes. stops a guy and Season of the Witch comes up and you cut back to her in the trailer and is he going to get caught? And um, Yeah, it just that scene's like incredible. And it, it has a great payoff with um, uh, some technology later on. Yeah. Which you you just you're, 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 yeah yeah definitely comedic and then otherwise just it's a tense thing because it's one of those things where you know something and you're waiting for another character to find out something and it's you know and then she finds out something that yeah it, it's a great line sure. Yeah. Um, my MVT, which you'd think it would be Wheatley since he's way up there with my uh, best directors, but I, I I'm going to give it to the two leads because right. I think. A lot of the film remains on them being likable as they do these awful things. Um, they're the ones who originally did the sound uh, sightseers short film. They went to Edgar Wright. They got it made. Then Ben Wheatley was brought in. So I, I'm going to give the MVT to them. They're the main. And, uh, yeah, they were just incredible in the lead performances. Um I'm going up a whole point more than you, 8.5. I really love this one. It's... Uh, it's definitely one I'll be buying and I'll be watching multiple times looking for those extra things that I like to find in his movies. Sure. But yeah, great, great film. 
Yeah, definitely. I think everyone should check it out. Um, like I said, you know, we both gave it a pretty fair score, and you know, I can't see anyone hating it because it, it's it's so competently made and so well executed by the leads and by the people behind the camera that you know you'll at least not feel like you wasted your time and get a few good things out of it. And I think if anything. If it's your first Wheatley, it's going to kind of compel you to keep your radar up for him and to go back and maybe track down his other two films. I think this would be, if someone hasn't seen Wheatley, it would be a good introduction film. Yeah, me. yeah. Because it's got enough polish, a little more polished than um, Down Terrace. And, and for and me... the twists and turns aren't as uh, shocking as the ones in uh, Kill List. That yeah. might put some people off. That oh, I was really liking it up until it made a complete 180. This never does a complete 180. No, no. So it, it might be a good introduction one. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair thing. Um, well, that's it. That's all. Um, uh, we're going to take a break, and by break we mean we're going to finish the show, and we're going to need some sleep, and we're going to get up at. Well, I'm we. I'm lifting you. You're, you're yeah, making it seem like I'm at your place. <laughs> it's a, yeah, we're going to go in the we're, bunk beds. and We're going to get to sleep. We're yeah. going to get up and... Make pancakes and... Exactly. Yeah. We'll need to go to the cottage and yeah. fight off mass marauders. You got it, Pontiac. So, yeah, thank you so much, man. It's been nice to be able to stretch our legs a little bit with you uh, oh, again. My pleasure. It's great to be back on the show. we got to get you back on soon, man. Um, we really, really have to. I wouldn't mind getting into some... Some category three, or just some, even if we just do some bonus episodes, just to some Hong Kong. I'm really digging into some Hong Kong stuff I haven't seen, like Red to Kill and a lot of really wild stuff that I'd love to review with you. So, um, yeah, I'd love that. I'm I'm a big fan of the Cat Three stuff. Yeah, you're the well, you are the cat. So the uncool Cat Three, the uncool Cat Three, exactly. Um, but yeah, no, I there's you know I've seen a lot of the flagship kind of category three films and even some of the lesser ones, but there's a lot in. The 80s and 90s I didn't see from Hong Kong that I'm trying to see, which you you would definitely have uh, a pretty good knowledge of. So, a, f- a fairly good. There's a lot I haven't seen too. It's just such a prolific. Yeah, such a huge list of films. Oh, yeah. But uh, yeah, the ones like even stuff like Underground Banker and yeah, you know some of the more unknown. It, they're just fantastic. They're wilder than any film you'll. <laughs> it's just they're crazy. Have you seen uh, Long Arm of the Law? Yeah, I love it. It's pre- I, it, it's pretty good. I, I was kind of good but not great, and I've been thinking about it nonstop for the past couple weeks. And that fa- finale in the walled was, city of Kowloon, it's it fucking astounding. Yeah, it's such a good payoff to oh. a really good film. Like it's the payoff's incredible in that. Film. It is absolutely incredible. And what do you prefer, that or On the Run? Which on the is run. a bit different. That's the UMBI one. It's sort of like a neo noir. I don't know if I've seen that, oh, so I'm going to go long really, arm of the really law. good. It's really good. On the run. I'm going to write that On down. the run. It's really good. I'm uh, sure I, once I see the cover or something, I'll be like, ah, that movie. But yeah. one of the ones that's been on the back burner for a while. But I will kick that up the list. I want to say Jeff Goodhart's Chris Davies, Rowan, and Stephen Hardy um, pushed it on me. I, I hadn't seen it, and I wanted to see it, and they kind of put it over the top. And I watched that in Long Arm of the Law the same weekend so yeah good stuff man there, there's a lot of it out there as always so um yeah i got a boogie my wife's waiting for me so same foreign, here four in the pink one in the stink as they say uh or the other way i guess depending on your proclivities but um yeah uh hopefully my wife doesn't listen to this and 
Ah, she's good sport. That's the way it goes. And I'll end on that, I'll, and I'll end on that awkward note. So thank you very much, as always. Uh, My pleasure. Truly a pleasure. And with that, we will say adios. Adios. I'll protect you from the hooded claw. Keep the vampires from your door. like fire I'm so in love with you Dreams are like angels They keep bad at bay Bad at bay Love is the light Scaring Darkness away yeah. I'm so in love with you Purge the soul Make love your goal The power of love A force from above Cleaning my soul Flame on burn
What's up, everybody? Long time no see. This is Death Rattle Aaron uh, with a little TIFF coverage for you. I didn't actually go to TIFF, uh, hopefully one day, maybe next year or the year after. But uh, our guest today did. Uh, he's the official knife flicker of the GGTMC, <laughs> uh, Mr. Feed My Ears himself, John Ross. What's up, man? Hey, man. Uh, not too much. Uh, glad to be here. Cool, man. So uh, you saw two movies. Uh, Antiviral and Lords of Salem, but before we get into those, um, were there any movies you can think of off the top of your head that you really wanted to see, like you're dying to see at TIFF, but you just couldn't? Oh, man, there was the tons. The Master. I mm-hmm. mean, everyone oh, wanted yeah. to see The Master, and um, uh, There Will Be Blood, man, was just took uh, Anderson's movies to another level for me, so mm-hmm. I was really stoked for The Master, but, you know, wasn't in the cards. Um what else was there? Yeah, well, oh, well, seven, luck- seven, sorry. Oh no, I was just gonna say. Uh, luckily, with the master, it should be out like yeah. soon. So you want to wait too long? And I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, seven psychopaths too. I wanted to see that. It's a follow up. Uh, oh, I forget his name. The director of In Bruges, and it has a uh, uh, Will Ferrell again, and uh, uh, Christopher Walken. Mm-hmm. Sam Rockwell. I thought that looked pretty good, but that was a gala performance and didn't get a chance to get a ticket. I only had the one day, the Monday. Uh, so it was based on what I could squeeze in there. Yeah. So it was those two flicks. I was thinking of maybe seeing something else, but it wasn't in the cards. Yeah. You said Will Farrell. Did you mean Colin Farrell? Or? Colin Farrell. Yeah, that's what I meant. Okay. <laughs> cool, man. Uh, it's going to be played back, and I'm going to be slapping myself on that face. That yeah. go. Nah, it happens, it happens. Yeah. Cool, so uh, let's talk about Antiviral first, uh, directed by Brandon Cronenberg. Uh, what made you want to seek this one out? Well, I'm a big fan of his dad's work. Uh, his dad's David Cronenberg, you know, oh, yeah. the, the video drone, the brood, all that. Big fan of his, and he's a, you know, a Canadian icon. And this was Brandon's first, uh, first movie. So I wanted to check it out. The trailer made it look definitely like it was in his dad's ballpark. Lots of body horror. Uh, do you have the plot up there? Do you want me to read the synopsis, or do you want oh, to get it? Yeah, I'll read it real quick. Uh, let's see. After being after becoming infected with the virus that killed superstar Hannah Geist, Sid March must unravel the mystery surrounding her death to save his own life. Does that sound uh, accurate? Uh, well, it's missing a big part of the beginning. He's a... Uh, this is in the future where they sell viruses that celebrities have had, mm-hmm. sort of a biological communion, they yeah. call it. Um, it's the ultimate celebrity stalking culture. Like, it doesn't say how far in the future it's supposed to be, but uh, people get, say, uh, your favorite um, MTV stars, herpes simplex, injected into your lip on the left side where they would have kissed you. Wow. To make you feel closer to that celebrity, and there's a big black market of celebrity viruses that are on sale. Uh, and this one gentleman, um, uh, Caleb Laundry, Laundry Drones, that's his, the actor's name. Sid March, yeah. I guess he works for one of the corporations that sells these viruses. In his spare time, he also pirates them out by injecting himself with these viruses and selling them on the black market. So it's kind of an interesting uh, plot, and I thought it looked good. Uh, mm-hmm. It was 
okay. Yeah. There's some problems with it. Uh, the protagonist, the actor, Caleb Wander Jones, I didn't find him very likable at all. Oh. He's, uh, have you seen uh, X-Men First Class? Um, yes. Oh, yeah. He played yeah. Banshee, right? Banshee. Yeah, and yeah, Banshee. He, he was also in the the last exorcism. He was like the yes, brother. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's been turning up in a lot lately. Uh, he has been, but he, he doesn't he doesn't really strike me as the leading man. You know, and he's not, and but, uh, his character's not a likable guy. Like he's a well. I mean, I have nothing against gingers or anything, but <laughs> he's a ponytail ginger salesman. <laughs> and, I mean, so he, he and he's a pirate. You know, he screws over his own company, yeah. smuggles out their viruses of celebrities, and sells them. Like, there's just no one to root for. Like the, uh, it was okay. Yeah. Uh, there's lots of um, little fevered uh, body horror, new flesh sequences, like his dad. You know, uh, the mouse disappearing on mouths disappearing on characters and uh, spikes growing over their backs. There's lots of pus and blood and sinky, sticky flesh, just like his dad. Yeah. Uh, it'd be interesting to see if he'd gone in a different direction and maybe not embraced his father's influences so much. Uh, yeah. The story's kind of okay. Uh, but yeah, like when you don't have anyone you can get behind, I don't know, you kind of lose me right out the door there. Yeah, so so basically, it's uh, not a really strong uh, debut effort from you know the son of arguably a master, you know. Yeah, part. it's interesting. It's yeah. just, uh, I mean, his look—he kind of shoots almost well, a bit on the nose, Kubrickian, you know, uh, real static shots with lots of uh, nice set decoration, very deliberate, you know, placement of everything. Uh, well, that was kind of, you know, pulling me in. His dad doesn't quite shoot in that style, yeah. but it is all real film school-y kind of stuff. Uh, I didn't mind it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some interesting little, uh, the viruses, you put them in a machine and they have a copy protection in it, which is like this distorted face. Every virus has its own face. It's not the face of the celebrity that the virus comes from or anything. It's just like this weird kind of, they don't, really explain it very well in the movie, but that the fact that the viruses have faces is kind of interesting, but they don't, it's, it's kind of a confusing, it sounds confusing when I'm describing it. Yeah. And it's kind of confusing in the movie, but it's an interesting touch. There's lots of little interesting things, but you kind of see where it's going. Yeah. I almost fell asleep. To tell you the truth. Uh, so I'm uh, spotting uh, David Cronenberg's back of his head in the crowd because the guy's a silver fox and his hair stands out. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, well, well, hopefully, you know, people don't have too many high expectations from Brandon. You know, it's it's inherent when the son of a director, especially a director like Cronenberg, uh, breaks into directing. People kind of hold him up on a high pedestal because of, you know, who his father is or something like that. So, uh, Well, then he embraces the body horror. That's the problem, eh? Uh, it like there. So, so you think he's definitely trying to follow follow in his dad's footsteps, uh, like aesthetically? It's not helping. Yeah. Like it's not helping with the comparisons, anyways. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I mean, I wouldn't mind seeing a second generation of that aesthetic going forward. It's just uh, the movie's just a bit 
and it's a bit on the nose. You see where it's coming. There's some things I like. Like I said, the set decorations are nice and stuff, and uh, the the main celebrity that he injects her virus into his body that the the, the plot kind of revolves around people trying to get this from him. Um, she kind of looks like Mira Servino in the stills that they have all over, like giant posters. You can see him in the posters for the movie. You can see her face there. I don't know. I like Mira Servino, so that was a bonus. But uh, yeah, it was kind of static and kind of film schooly, schooly, and yeah. a bit, but interesting. I give it a six. Anyways, cool. Yeah, jumping ahead. Yeah, I'm looking at the cast, and the only name that really sticks out, I'm sure I've seen some of these other people, but the only name that really sticks out uh, right away is Malcolm McDowell. Uh, yeah, pops up out of nowhere. Oh, really? Yeah, it's just a weird little cameo. Huh. And uh, Nicholas Campbell's in that for any Canadian fans or Canadians who are listening. Uh, he was, uh, he's a Canadian TV icon, Da Vinci's Inquest. It's weird. I've never seen him outside of the TV show until Goon. He's in Goon as well. Uh-huh. And then I see him in this. So I've seen him in two movies in the last few month and a half. And I've never seen him in a movie before. But he's uh, pretty famous for a pretty good TV show. Yeah. Okay. Cool, man. So, Do you have anything else to uh, you want to say about Antiviral before we move on? Or? You know, i got a bunch of stuff written down, but I can barely even read my own. <laughs> right. uh, on the nose set dressing, composition of shots, pretty good. Viruses with faces equal copy protection. Uh, oh, the lead character has some nice sales pitches. Mm-hmm. To sell the viruses to prospective buyers, I guess. Like uh, I think I mentioned the herpes injecting this celebrity's herpes into your lip. It would be on the left side if you want to imagine them leaning down and kissing you. Like he really sells it and the you know, the fans are like, Oh yeah, that's what I want And then he checks you in the face and says, You'll be showing by Labor Day and that was kinda clever, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's about it on that. Cool. It was interesting, but uh yeah. It'd be interesting to see if he could get away from doing his dad stuff. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. it was David Cronenberg. Yeah, well, well, who knows? Maybe he can kind of also pick up where his dad left off because, you know, a, a lot of us are are fans of Cron- or David Cronenberg's, you know, body horror. Like, yeah. you know, his whole uh, – the whole aesthetic he created with movies like Videodrome and like The Brood and stuff like that. But he kind of got away from that. Nobody else has really kind of touched that. So who knows? Maybe he might be able to uh, – you know, step it up and kind of do something in that realm or maybe well, just you know, get away from it altogether. I'm definitely interested in his next work. Like, he, it piqued my attention. It's, this movie is more of a good calling card. Yeah. Oh, it should also be said that at the Q&A, they had the producer out. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a Canadian flick a few years ago called Passchendaele. It was a war movie, and I guess it did quite well in Canada. And the it was... Designed, let me see if I get this right. I think the Film Board of Canada produced this. That's a big deal in Canada here. They produce a lot of uh, television and sh- shorts and stuff. But they produced this movie, Passchendaele, and it did pretty well. It was one of the best selling Canadian movie in Canada, whatever. And the profits from that was set up to go into a fund to produce other Canadian movies. Mm-hmm. The first Canadian movie that was produced with these funds from Passchendaele was Hobo with a Shotgun. Oh. And now this is the, uh, which debuted at Midnight Madness too yeah. uh, last year, I think. I 
could be wrong there. But uh, and this is antivirals, the second movie from the profits from this. And I guess the p- part of the profits from these movies go back into the system to perpetuate Canadian genre talent. I guess uh, maybe it's not just genre, but so far the first two movies have been. Yeah. So that's interesting. I've never seen Passchendaele, but mm-hmm. it had an interesting legacy. Yeah, very cool. Or Canadian, uh, sorry. No, no, no. Were you saying something? Nope, nope, that's it. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll probably check this one out on DVD or something or Netflix. Uh, I'm yes. I'm a I'm a fan of like futuristic uh, like sci-fi thrillers that kind of fall in like the dystopia, uh, you know, realm yeah. or something like that. But this uh, is right that alley, kind of Gattaca meets. Mm-hmm, yeah, it's probably a good description. Yeah, it, Netflix or video is the place to see this. I would say. Not that I don't think you will ever see it in the theater anyways. Uh-huh. Cool, man. So moving on, the second film uh, is one that I and I know a lot of our listeners are very curious about, and that would be Lords of Salem, uh, the first Rob Zombie movie since, uh, gosh, maybe 2009, Halloween 2, and his first original movie since The Devil's Rejects, which has been, gosh, like seven years ago or something like that, seven, yeah. six years ago. Yeah. How much promise did The Devil's Rejects show? How much growth? From House of a Thousand Corpses. Oh, yeah. And then the Halloween debacle, or I don't know where people lean on there. I saw some favorable things, but, I mean, you have to divorce yourself from the whole original and the weird direction he took explaining evil. Yeah, see, see, as much as Halloween's a classic, not to, uh, you know digress from the Lords of Salem review, as much as Halloween's a classic, and rightfully so, it's one of my favorite movies, you know, I, I was open to seeing a remake of it. Same here. Especially by Rob Zombie. He's got, you know, when you watch a Rob Zombie movie, you definitely know it's one of his films, you know, just visually, not even like the stunt casting and the dialogue and stuff. He very much has his own uh, kind of unique visual style that goes back to like his music video days, you know what I mean? Very much so. But yeah, uh, yeah Halloween, the Halloween movies just, I don't know. I, I do like the second one just because of the visuals and uh, just because <laughs> yeah, I... of the, the atmosphere behind it. But uh, oof, anyway, yes, yeah, but yeah. Uh, I do love Devil's Rejects, though. I should say that. Yeah, I didn't love Devil's Rejects, you know, but I, I liked it. I, I definitely saw, uh, to, to steal a term from uh, Vern, uh, the reviewer. I don't know if you've ever read any of his reviews. He's an online guy. <laughs> but the filmatism... His filmatism certainly increased between House of a Thousand Rejects and, uh, or sorry, House of a Thousand Corpses and The Devil's Rejects. Like he certainly grew as a filmmaker greatly between those two movies. Yeah, but uh, yeah, the Halloween. Uh, I saw some things I liked, but yeah. anyways, yes, yeah, well, The Lords of Salem. Yeah, let me synopsize this real quick. Uh, it's real quick. Uh, residents of Salem, Massachusetts, are visited by a 300-year-old coven of witches. Oh, that is one of the more accurate uh, <laughs> views I have read online. Yeah. Because let me tell you, a lot of them are woefully inaccurate. Uh, and even the IMD page, DB page there, man, is full of people that are not in the movie or have been cut from mm-hmm. the movie. Yeah. Uh, some of the people that they say are in this movie that were cut are uh, Clint Howard, Udo Kier, Lisa Marie, Billy Drago, Camille Keaton, Christopher Knight, wow. Barbara Cramp, Sid Haig, Michael Berryman. Those three are in the credits, but I never saw them. Richard so Lynch so died during so, so none of them are in the movie? No. Oh, no. man. Not at all. 
that's just some of uh, it'd be easier to describe who is in the movie. Yeah. Uh, we'll get to, I guess, but, cool. uh, so what's the verdict, man? <sighs> uh, it's another, uh, not to give a spoiler, but I give it a pass, but just barely. Yeah. I know a fish was there. Vish mm-hmm. knew. Uh, I just missed him somehow. Uh, he called out to me, but it was so loud during the screening. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he hated it. And, uh, there was times I hated this movie and there was times I'm like, Oh, interesting. But Rob Zombie as ever is his own worst enemy. Yeah. I mean, he'll set up a nice little intriguing scene, uh, wrought with tension and, uh, interesting visuals. And then ruin that scene with a wipe to his wife's ass. Yeah. Just, I mean, I guess he's an auteur that way. He always has certain things he calls back to his movies and, uh, Sherry Moon Zombie's ass is foremost among them, but <laughs> that's getting ahead, I guess. Uh, the plot there is pretty accurate. Uh, let me see. Uh, yeah, Sherry Moon Zombie. Um, uh, sorry. Uh, what's his name? Jeff Daniel Phillips. Yeah, I'm, we don't have the Geico stuff in Canada here, but the Geico Caveman, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah. That's the male lead of this movie. Oh, okay. It looks kind of like a melted Dave Grohl. Yeah, I was about to ask, there's so many so many names in this cast, like who's the lead? That would be him? Well, Sherry Moon Zombie is definitely the lead of this movie. Oh, okay. Uh, she's on, film, on screen 98. Eight percent of this movie, if not every scene in this movie, uh-huh. and uh, a lot of people hate Sherry Moon Zombie. I think she's really good in the first third of this movie, and man, she's wearing drip, blonde dreadlocks and she's got those little cat glasses on. I well, that just does it for me. It's unbelievably oh, yeah. hot. But uh, <laughs> that beside the fact, uh, she's in the movie all the time. And the basic plot of the movie is a witch's curse. Uh, it's revisited upon a town, you know, the ancestors. She's the ancestors of these people, of the people who burned these witches to death 300 years ago or whatever the date was. Mm-hmm. She's a DJ now. She gets a record sent to her um, at, the D, at the radio station. Uh, it only plays five notes when it's played. And uh, those notes put her into kind of a trance where she starts hallucinating uh, about witches and the devil and various satanic things and Rob Zombie visuals. Um, she plays the record. They eventually play the record over the air. More women kind of go into a trance. They promise a big concert where the lords who sent the record are going to show up and play. Uh, that never happens. I mean, there's a concert, but it's, if you're going and expecting trick or treat or black roses, there's no metal mayhem, satanic stuff whatsoever in this movie. Yeah. It's more of a Rosemary's baby, the Sentinel slow burn, but Rob Zombie doesn't have the patience to do a slow burn. So like I said, he'll build tension, he'll build a scene and then he'll do something utterly ridiculous that breaks all everything he lays down in the next scene. Yeah. So that's basically the plot in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's really good. Cherry Moon Zombie's amazing. Not amazing. That's for her <laughs> a big improvement. 
until they play the record, and then she spends the rest of the movie in kind of a, a fugue state, I would say, barely acting, you know, half in a trance. Mm-hmm. I'm being hypnotized. Like, she gets left hung up to dry by her husband's directing in this movie. And, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I don't know. It looks cheap, too. You could tell he had a lower budget with this movie. He tries to do some big things. There's some nice cinematography, but it's undone by uh, the, the graininess of the digital, almost like a net. I don't know, maybe it was the projector I was looking at, but I kept on getting this, like, it looked like it was being filmed through a screen door. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. Um, I got lots of notes here, but I think I just, there's um, some really good use of um, some older actresses in this movie, though. Yeah. Uh, Judy Geeson. I don't know if uh, you've ever heard of her. She's from To Serve With Love was her biggest thing. She's done tons of TV and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Patricia Quinn from Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. Um, and uh, Dee Wallace. They play like three sisters, like landladies, and they're all really good. Yeah. Uh, Maria Conchita Alonso. Yeah. <laughs> from, uh, she makes like the first time I've seen her in a movie in a decade, and she's pretty good. Uh, Meg Foster plays the lead witch. Now, these witches are kind of great. Yeah. They're very uh, satanic, <clears throat> pure evil. They're, they're no Wicca. They're, they screw goats and they dance around naked. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see Meg Foster in full frontal nakedness. It's oh, wow. Not pretty, it's not a pretty sight. Yeah, she, actually, she's uh, looking kind of rough these days? or Yeah, and I'm actually not sure if it actually was her or maybe appliances. Uh-huh. But whatever, you see a lot of naked flesh in this movie, and it's not the flesh you probably want to see. It's usually of the hag variety. Uh but they're all got some pretty good roles. Also, Zombie really cuts back, I mean, all the way, actually, for the on his habit of having uh, probably all these characters that were cut were the people he would have swearing mm-hmm. and acting like rednecks. There's none of that in this movie, which is a huge step up as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, but he just... Uh, He'll have a dream sequence inserted out of nowhere that goes exactly where you think it's going to go with the, I don't want to give any spoilers for anyone who wants this movie, but if you think something's going to happen, it's going to happen very obviously. Mm -hmm. It might be well filmed, but then he'll undercut it two seconds later with a ridiculous cut. I mean, I'm repeating myself, but I liked it, but uh, I how was the uh, how was the soundtrack for this one? I know all of his movies up to this point have uh, some interesting soundtracks that kind of uh, I guess fit the theme of the movie. Like in Devil's Rejects, he had like a lot of Southern Americana rock type songs, and then uh, you know in uh, House of a Thousand Corpses, he had like some punk songs, some Ramones in there, and stuff like that. Some of his own music. Was there any stuff like that in this movie, or was it just kind of straightforward like score? Um. Well, there's really okay. Uh, he has a habit of playing a song from beginning to end. You know, Freebird or what have you, and the Devil's Rejects. Yeah. This one, it's all Tomorrow's Parties by the Velvet Underground. So that's mm-hmm. a their step up as far as I'm concerned, and that's used a pretty good effect actually. Uh, one of the final shots in the movie, which will I'm not going to give it away, but it's divisive to a lot of people. 
people. But that song has a big part in that. Um, the also the the record from the Lords, but in is this uh, I don't know. Uh, it's kind of it brought to mind the the famous tritone, you know, the the devil's notes. Uh, Sabbath used them a lot. Chord progression or yep. what. I'm not sure. Actually, I'm not a musician, but but it was five notes, so I don't know. Maybe the pentatones. I don't know. Uh, but they play this record, and it was kind of a uh, I don't want uh, industrial kind of these playing these notes over and over, repeated. And I was like, kept on waiting for a song to kick in with them because I was like, that sounds kind of awesome, actually. Uh, but no, you only ever hear those five notes repeated. So again, I was expecting a, a metal song or something. I don't know if you but uh, did, but uh, uh, I know I and a lot of people kind of got the vibe. It was going to be a concert, evil, devil, witches, reborn in a metal band or a band body. And they even pipe it in the movie that there's going to be of these guys. But, no. Yeah. It's a- Honestly, like, I, I never read too much into the film i kind of like to not do a lot of research uh with movies that i'm kind of looking forward to just so i can watch as fresh as possible uh with this one i i didn't really care too much i just didn't really uh research it because i don't know i just didn't really care too much i guess but uh like i haven't seen any clips from it so this is all like you know new information to me i do remember though um back before like the cast was announced there were a few people uh, listed, and one of them, she might have been the person that Sherry Moon Zombie replaced, was uh, Julia Voth. She's not a really well-known actress, but uh, have you seen Bitch Slap? I uh, haven't, no. Okay, that would be like her most noteworthy thing. She was one of the three chicks in, uh, three leads in Bitch Slap, which is like a uh, faster pussycat kill kill, like modern day... On uh, the Spartacus? Rip off of there's a chick from Slap that was in Spartacus. Uh, I'm not sure which one. I'm not sure if it was her. I don't think it was her. Okay. I could be wrong, though. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I was really looking forward to seeing her in this because she has a really good presence. She's very pretty. And she was good in Bitch Slap, which is a movie I didn't really care for that much. And then she's kind of very in, in the very early stages. She just kind of fell off and got replaced. So uh, He said there was a lot of people that were told that that are listed and that were uh, reported to be in this movie that he never saw or had any lay. Uh, but I'm not saying she was one of them, but uh, uh, Billy Drago, he mm-hmm. said never in the movie at all. Oh, but, zombie uh, said that. Yeah. That's, that's, in- that's interesting because he's got like a whole character name uh, on IMDb and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they all got characters names and, mm-hmm. uh, um, he said uh, a lot of people didn't expect, uh, like, this was the first time a lot of people were finding out their roles were completely cut from the movie during the Q&A, the Toronto premiere. Uh, I know I follow uh, Barbara Crampton on Facebook, and she was chopping some, uh, well, at least I'm not cut from this movie, some little. <laughs> yeah. Boys, people are pretty upset. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. But so, like I said, so it's I mean, kind of, it kind of, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, it's maybe just cut out all the all the bad stuff. That, that, you know, all you know, his redneck uh, yeah. 
stuff that he has a penchant for doing. I mean, just the fact that Sid Haig, uh, Michael Berryman, and Christopher Knight were hosts of a Lobster Man TV show or something, or listened in the credits, that makes me think that uh, he did the right thing cutting that stuff out because it would have messed the tone up even more if it cut to silly. 60s rockabilly Rob Zombie culture it, it, that doesn't fit in this movie. This is more of a full she meets uh, uh, Rosemary's Baby, poorly done art house, divergent Rob Zombie timeline movie. I don't know. It's an interesting failure, just like antiviral. That was two in a row, six. I would say give them both a six, and they're both interesting failures in my book. Yeah. So from the sounds of it, it sounds like uh, the biggest flaw of this one is that it's just uneven. Very uneven. Yeah. And cheap looking, unfortunately. But there's some really positives. Like he can really direct uh, older actresses. Maybe he gives them good roles. He says he doesn't know why Hollywood doesn't hire them. Uh, and the old, you know, if you're not under 30 in Hollywood, you're don't get the good roles, but he really cast some of these aging starlets to really good effect. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm taken away from the positive from this movie. Yeah. Anyways. So I'm seeing uh, Lisa Marie's name in the credits. Is she actually in the movie? Never saw her, huh. but maybe, maybe she was, you know, there was one actress. I'm not sure who she was. She was an aging. It could have been Lisa Marie. It could have been Barbara Crampton, uh, but or it could be someone entirely different. There's a couple like you know one shot girls being hypnotized by the witches shots. I'm not sure, but I didn't see her. Yeah. Bruce Davidson's in it, and he <laughs> looks like a milk toast Rucker Hour in it. It's kind of weird seeing, <laughs> you know, the senator from the X Men movies. <laughs> looking like Rucker Howard. I'm like, yeah. Oh. But, uh, yeah, and he's married to Maria Conchita Alonso's character. Uh-huh. I've seen her on, she was a big part of my childhood, I don't know, with uh, The Running Man. And, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, wasn't, she, wasn't she in Colors with Sean Penn? Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember her. Pac-Man. Yeah. <laughs> was, uh, Oh, what did I just watch her in? Oh, Click through. Oh. Well, yeah, she was in lots of good stuff. Uh, oh, what's the one with Nick Nolte and uh, Powers Booth? Um, uh, the gentleman covered it. Uh, she was oh, really uh, Extreme Prejudice? Extreme Prejudice, yeah, yeah. she's in that. Yeah, so I used to watch her a lot on pay. She was in always showed up and had lots of credits. Wow. Cool. So, uh, any last words you want to say about Lords of Salem? Um, no, I think probably rambled on long enough about it. Um, yeah. weird tonal shifts, lots of Sherry Moon zombies ass, which I gotta say, I mean, she's got a phenomenal ass, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm not <laughs> showing her ass, but when you have a weird shot of her butt crack hanging out, and it does not fit the character. Yeah. It's the thing. It's out of character for the character, and it's out of it's out of left field for the movie. But it seems to be one of his auteur shots. Let's show my wife's ass crack while she's walking away for no reason. Yeah, and really. Bugged. So it's just uh, gratuitous nudity, is what you're saying? Do it, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. 
I don't I'm a fan it. of that in general, yeah. but sometimes it can be a bad thing, you know. When it ruins, it doesn't take place in the vibe when you're trying to go for a evil, satanic baby. Oh, maybe that's a spoiler. <laughs> well, there's lots of twists in this movie, I guess. Uh-huh. But uh, it's interesting. It's divisive already. Yeah, I should. If you want to, if your thing is goth chicks, um, go to a Rob Zombie movie premiere. <laughs> oh, wow. And it's all the eyeliner and fishnet stockings and short leather skirts you could ask for. Nice, nice. I'm into goth chicks, so uh, maybe I'll make it up for his next movie. Yeah, it added maybe a, a point. <laughs> cool man so uh yeah thanks for coming on and sharing your uh tiff experiences with us so, yeah. so overall it was a pretty uh pretty disappointing you'd say oh the atmosphere one can't underestimate the fun of midnight madness yeah. uh if you yeah yeah you're in the crowd with your people well, in that case it was a lot of rob zombie people but mm-hmm. i mean there's yeah. a cross there it was fun even if it was only a couple of sixes yeah well in a perfect world next year uh tiff would be right before horror hound and i could do both in one yeah. trip so but uh we'll see cool Great man enough. all right well, so uh go ahead and plug your group real quick on facebook okay yeah uh, feed uh, feed my ears um if you want to discover new music uh talk about music or recommend music for me to listen to at work. Cause that's what the group started as. And, uh, man, my music collection is like doubled. <laughs> the little group is turning into its own little community. We got a little, you know, we talk about, uh, stoner metal one second and then a uh, big long discussion on Johnny cash. The next. Yeah. Uh, we're got, uh, we're almost, you know, we're 85 members. So I'm trying to get to a hundred, you know, the elusive goal, yeah. but, uh, I like the way it's going. So join up, talk about music, give me stuff to listen to. Yep, good stuff. I'm a member, and uh, it's a lot of fun getting some new music recommendations on there. And uh, yeah, we'll hit, we'll hit 100 soon, soon. Yes. <laughs> cool, man. Well, uh, yeah, thanks, and uh, I'll talk to you later, bud. All right, man.